You're listening to City Church Manchester. We are a church that invites everyone to enjoy Christ for the glory of God. If we can serve you in any way, then visit our website at citychurchmanchester.org to find out more. So the Bible reading today is Daniel 1, and it's on page 884 of the Blue Church Bibles. Daniel chapter 1 page 884. This is the word of God. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God, Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that, they were to enter the king's service. Among those who were chosen were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names, to Daniel, the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, And he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself in this way. Now God had caused the official to show favor and compassion to Daniel. But the official told Daniel, I'm afraid of my Lord and King who's assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men of your age? The King would then have my head because of you. Daniel then said to the guard whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, please test your servants for 10 days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this and tested them for 10 days. At the end of the 10 days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning, and Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. At the end of the time set by the king to bring them into his service, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them, and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, so they entered the king's service. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. And Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. Good afternoon, good afternoon. Let me add my welcome to Ralph's. It's great to have you with us. Well done for uh, surviving both the heat and the traffic. But we're here, we're here this afternoon, as Ralph said, to excitedly hear God's word. 
Um, and the passage that Ali has just read for us is a wonderful passage. A number of us, it will be very familiar. But my prayer for this afternoon is that it will be highly relevant to every single one of us here as we seek to understand it and apply it. Uh, let me pray and then we'll dive straight in. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that we can enjoy you as a community Because you are not a distant God who set the world in motion, but you are one who speaks to us even today as your word is opened. And so we ask that you would, by your spirit, give us soft hearts that we might hear your voice clearly to us this afternoon and leave here knowing that we have encountered the living God. Amen. Now, whether you are a... um, a Christian, or you're a non-Christian, it's wonderful to have you here. But there is one thing that we all have in common. It really doesn't matter what you believe or what you do or where you're from. The big thing that we have in common is that every single one of us here has found themselves right in the heart of a massive, massive city. And cities play a really important role in the Bible. And one of the best ways to explore what the Bible teaches about living in cities, uh, and most importantly, thriving in cities, one of the best places to go is the book of Daniel, and particularly Daniel chapter 1. You see, Daniel is a book that follows a guy, as you can imagine, named Daniel, who's been snatched from his home, most likely in Jerusalem, 900 miles away to a city called Babylon. And Babylon is arguably one of the largest, if not the greatest city of the ancient world. And in our time together, we're going to look at three things very briefly. We're going to be looking at the values of the city the opportunity of the city, and the secret of the city. So come with me to our first point, the values of the city. Now, there's a couple of values that I want to unpack to you that are true of the city of Babylon. They're true, I think, of the city of Manchester. And for those of you who are watching, potentially in cities across the world, it's probably true of those areas as well. And in some senses, I think it will have echoes even if you don't live in a city, because the values, particularly in this interconnected internet age, have kind of flooded right throughout every strata of society. And the first value is this. All treasures belong to the city. This is the first value that cities have. All treasures belong to the city. Look with me at verse 2 of chapter 1 of Daniel. In verse 2, we're told that stolen treasures from the temple of Jerusalem are taken 900 miles away to the city of Babylon, and they're put in display in the museums dedicated to various Babylonian gods and idols. And I want you to see that this isn't a rarity. Actually, this is the typical posture of major world cities. Because cities see themselves as living theme parks. I wonder if you've noticed that. Cities often see themselves as proud monuments to the glory of the world. 
And they pride themselves on being the rightful place and home of the best, the most glorious, the most wondrous artifacts in the world. And so cities typically are the places where the great things belonging to different cultures and nations are bought or stolen or dragged right into the heart of the world's major cities and put on display. And that's no different in Manchester. Manchester is a city that describes itself as a kind of living beehive. It has this kind of belief at the very center of this city that whoever you are, wherever you're from, it doesn't matter, whatever you think, whatever you believe, whatever your sexuality, you're welcome to come to this city so long as you're going to work hard for the benefit of this city and bring the treasures of your culture, your nation, your heritage, and bring them into this city for the benefit of the whole of the city. And so, as you can imagine, Manchester is a city where we have some of the best food from around the world. You've probably checked that out from its many restaurants here. We have the best music. We have the best theatre and entertainment right across the world, right here in the middle of our city. The innovative ideas that have changed the world, votes for women, splitting the atom, all come from Manchester. You see, this is a city where the precious things of the world have been brought to our doorstep. And you and I tend to shrug our shoulders and say, well, that's one of the things I love about being in a city like Manchester. It's wonderful. It's overwhelming. It's incredible. The world is on our doorstep if you are a city dweller here in Manchester. Now, people asked, um, Jackie and I, when we first moved to, to the city, and we got a house right in the very heart of, of Manchester, about 10 minutes' walk from here, and people said to us, how is, this, how is this responsible parenting? They said to us, how can, how can a city be a really good place to raise a family? And, and I said this, I said, look, the local library to where we live, has over one million books. The local art gallery to where we live has over 25,000 artifacts from across the world. And at the time, my son, one of his favorite TV shows was on CBeebies. Parents, do you know CBeebies? We know CBeebies. Mr. Tumble. Now, most of you are too old for Mr. Tumble, but Mr. Tumble, it was his favorite TV show. And Mr. Tumble um, had this remarkable house, and it was an incredibly popular show. And for us, it just wasn't simply on TV. Mr. Tumble's house was 10-minute drive from us, built in a TV studios on Salford Keys. The best that this world has to offer was on the doorstep of any family willing to move into the city. But of course we have to say, don't we, that those, those in our city who have been forced to live here, the army of the trafficked, enslaved people who are prisoners in squalid conditions across this city, or those who are refugees who have come here fleeing persecution, those same artifacts that many of us delight in 
and see as fun are also probably markers to them of sadness, disappointment, loss, and displacement. And I wonder if that's how Daniel felt when he arrived in Babylon to see the treasures of his heritage and homeland on display in the museums there. Come with me to the second value of the city. Competency is currency. Competency is currency. You see, the values of Babylon, I think, are really uncannily similar to Manchester's values. You see, Babylon is all about programs. You can see that in the first few verses, can't you? It's all about programs, courses, assessments, and boosting your CV. That was what was facing Daniel when he arrived in the city of Babylon. Look with me at verse 4. We're told that the interview criteria mark scheme for Daniel and the other enrolled graduates was showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve the king's palace. Look at me at verse 5. It tells us that the assessment program was a three-year contract that Daniel and the rest of his um, cohort had to face. Now, I wonder how many of you are thinking as you read that, well, that sounds a lot like my situation. Well, that sounds really similar to the situation that brought me into Manchester in the first place. Most of us know, don't we? if we haven't faced it already, that at some point during our time in Manchester, there will be a test or an assessment or an appraisal that will determine our future. Well, that was the truth in Babylon. That's the truth for us, those of us who live in the city. I want you to note as well, though, the dark expectations that lie in the heart of Babylon's values. You see, deeper than simply intellect or achievement, look with me at verse 4. The criteria for success in the city of Babylon was without physical defect and handsome. Meaning that the 21st century Manchester workers today that are anxious about their profile picture and their waistline were as much anxious about the way they look today as their Babylonian counterparts 3,000 years ago. Professional and physical approval are the currency in the great city. And the more you have of those two things, the more valuable you will feel. That was as true for Daniel in Babylon as it is for you guys living in Manchester. Come with me to the third value of the city. Absorb our stories or leave. Absorb our stories or leave. Look with me at the back end of verse 4. It tells us the two module titles on the curriculum uh, that Daniel and his friends had to study. We're told that they had to learn language and they had to learn literature. That is... This cohort were taught the most important stories of Babylonian culture. Stories that would teach them what was good, what was bad. Stories that would teach them what to love, what they should hate. And stories that would teach them what to prioritize in life. You see, if you want to indoctrinate a child into the cultural values in which they live... 
You just need to tell that child all of the fairy tales, folk stories of that culture. You just need to sit them in front of a screen and get them to watch story after story after story after story after story, and that really will do it. Stories change the way you think. Stories change your identities. If you absorb the stories, you will conform to the culture in which you are in. And know that Daniel and his friends in verse 7, look at me at verse 7, they are immersed into these stories so that the stories actually become part of their very identities. Each enrolled Israelite is given a brand new name and that new name will erode their bonds to their old life and it will help them feel like they are absorbed into the culture, into the city, into the stories of their new life. The new name marks they now belong to Babylon. Now, three of the guys that are mentioned who are Daniel's friends are named after Babylonian gods. That would be like, that would be like you coming to Manchester and being given a brand new nickname in your place of work based on the values of the city. Imagine your nickname was um, Files Their Expenses on Time. <laughs> or um, uh, Never Gets a Left Swipe. Something like that. That the values of the time basically rename them. Daniel is renamed Belshazzar, meaning let Baal protect him. It's an interesting name, isn't it? A foreign god is placed at the heart of his new identity. And you can see by verse 10, look at me at verse 10, because the stakes are really high. The program supervisor, a guy called Ashpenaz, is concerned that if he fails that it could cost him his life. And I want you to feel this sense of Babylonian culture in this city, that punishment and violence hang over the Babylonian program. Simply put, if you don't shape up, you're out. The city, whether it's Babylon or Manchester, will tell you that there are two types of people. There are winners or there are losers. There are those who belong, and then those who are outcasts. If you just absorb the stories of the city, that is where your mind will also be shaped. So if, if that's the value of the city, come with me to our second point, the opportunities of the city. Because that all sounds a little bit bleak, doesn't it? Because the question has to be, why, why should a Christian value the opportunities of the city if the values of the city are so utterly different to Christian values? After all, some of us are here in this city by choice. Others have been forced to live here because of perhaps family obligations. Others have been forced to be here because of professional requirements. What's the opportunity? What's the upside of living in a city like this? Well, it's one word, and it's called influence. You see, Manchester, if you want to talk about influence, is a significant political power. In three weeks, in three weeks, the government will descend on this city 
with the TV cameras of the world being trained on this city at the Conservative Party conference. They're coming to Manchester, and so will everyone else. The, the BBC and ITV, two of the world's most foremost television networks, are based in Media City in Salford. Manchester continues to be an absolutely vital economic power base. In fact, recently, Manchester was voted the number one entrepreneurial city in the country. You see, just like Babylon, it is vital to have believers in this place, seeking the thriving of the city whose health impacts the wider country and whose ideas influence the world. And it's vital to have Christians in places of influence so that the good of the many for a city that's so influential like ours has representatives of Yahweh, representatives of the God of the universe right in the heart of it. Christians who are ready to protect, to support those who are vulnerable, and to bring justice where there is injustice. That is the influence and opportunities that Christians have, which is why we need Christians exactly where you are. And this is Daniel and his friend's opportunity if they nail the program that they're in. But look with me at verse 3, because whereas influence in Babylon was reserved for the nobility, you see that in verse 3, don't you? In Manchester, it's different. Because in Manchester, it doesn't matter who you are, it doesn't matter where your family's from, it really doesn't matter your educational background, you are never very far from influential world shapers, just by virtue of being in the right coffee shop at the right time. That's just what Manchester's like. For example... If, if you were about the city, if you, in fact, if you were in Cheatham's Library just down the road in the 1840s, you would have bumped into Karl Marx and Frederick Engels who were inventing communism. If you were in the, um, Ancoats, just wandering around the streets of there from 1910 to about 1952, you might have bumped into L.S. Lowry, a phenomenally famous artist. You need to remember, as you walk down the streets of the Northern Quarter, you are in the highest concentration of tech startups in the country. You see, the next Musk or the next Bezos could well just be drinking a latte on the table beside you. What an opportunity it is to have representatives of God, the king of the universe, in the midst of a place of such global influence. Give me a nod if you're a Hamilton fan, the musical. Give me a nod. You'll know that song, um, Room Where It Happens, where Aaron Burr longs to be in a meeting behind closed doors where all of the big decisions are being made. All of the big players are in there. All of the big influence shapers are talking about what they're going to do and what's going to happen. Look, Manchester is the room where it happens, which is why it is absolutely vital that we have Christians in that place, and that is exactly why God has placed you here in this city at this time to make that difference. Well, come with me to our third and, and final point. 
the secret of the city. The secret of the city. Because here's the problem. The problem of the city is if you are so intimidated by the kind of scary overwhelmingness of the city, your temptation will be just to withdraw and turn your world, your life, into some sort of small Christian monastery. But if you do that, you will fail to echo the outgoing, generous love of the creator God who's made you. You'll fail to echo God the Son who incarnationally became one of us and walked a amidst the horrors and wonders of humanity. You'll miss out on the opportunities to shape the lives of wider society for good. But on the, on the opposite side, if you, if you just utterly embrace all that the city offers you, if you absorb all of the stories the city wants you to take on board, you're also going to fail to image the creator God who knows you and knows the way that you ought to live so that you'll thrive. And you'll throw all of that away if you just fall into the way the city wants you to be shaped. So are we to be distinct or are we to be involved? Well, the answer, of course, is both. And that discernment of when to be distinct and when to get really stuck in, well, that is the heart of wisdom. That is the heart of wisdom, which is the theme right throughout the book of Daniel. And I'd really encourage you to read the rest of Daniel over the next few weeks. Because we're told in chapter 1 in verses 17, 19, and 20 that Daniel was a man of remarkable wisdom. And in chapter 1, the wisdom of discernment that Daniel had expressed itself in Daniel deciding, get this, to reject food from the king's table, kind of like the best food, the choicest meat, the finest wines, in favor of a vegetable diet. Now, before the vegetarians and vegans get too excited, let me unpack that a little bit. The likelihood, the likelihood is that Daniel is choosing to draw a line when it comes to Jewish specific laws on what food they can eat and that they can't. You see, why, why would Daniel draw a line on that? Because there's lots of laws, there's lots of regulations in um, in the laws that uh, Moses uh, communicated from God, why focus on the food laws? Or why draw a line on that? Because of the heart of the Jewish food laws given by Moses was the idea that the Israelites would express their very special identity as God's chosen people through the key rhythms of life. All of the laws that Moses gave, all focused on key rhythms of life. For example, key celebrations, rest days every week, and significantly, food. So why would Daniel draw a line here? Because every day, multiple times a day, there's Daniel and his friends, and they're all in the staff canteen together, aren't they? And they're proclaiming even though they'd lost their names, 
Even though they'd lost their families, even though they had lost their homes, they were proclaiming in the staff canteen every day that they still knew that they belonged to Yahweh, the God of the Bible. That's why I think he drew a line on that. So my question to you is, what about you? Where are you going to draw a line this year, this term, to regularly shout from the rooftop in this great city of Manchester that your identity belongs only to Jesus? Perhaps it will be the refusal to date a non-Christian. Perhaps it will be a refusal to have sex outside of marriage. I don't know. But where are you going to draw that line? As a little kind of practical help as you make that decision for you and your family, I want you to note that Daniel's line is a regular rhythm that in a small but really noticeable way marks his deepest allegiance. It's a regular rhythm, isn't it? It was every mealtime, very publicly, people could see this. It wasn't simply something that was done in private secrecy. It was something to be noticed as a rhythm, not as a one-off. So I wonder what that could be for you. Perhaps it's intentionally prioritizing church or youth group or connect or equip when actually that significantly shapes your diaries. Perhaps it's intentionally teaching the Bible to your children even though you're exhausted at the end of the day and there's a million and other things worth doing. Perhaps it is intentionally giving regularly towards the ministry of the church, even though that will mean there's other things that you're going to have to cut back on that others may well notice or ask you about. Let's be honest. Drawing a line in order to publicly proclaim your first allegiance is with God of the universe is hard, it is a risk, it is costly. And this is what you're against. The city out there will promise you that you can have your dreams and your desires now. It will never fulfill that, but it will promise you you can have all of it right now and you don't need to wait. But in return, the city will demand that you give over all of your freedom, give over all of your time, give unrestricted access to your thought life and your bank balance. That's the trade the city will ask of you. Whereas, look, being a citizen of the kingdom of God is that you know to experience the full desires of your heart will require you to be patient. Do you see the difference? But if you can be patient, the promises of the gospel are that you will find that true freedom. The longings of your heart will one day be truly experienced by you. Not, not in this world, but in the new creation to come. For the promise of the gospel is that it won't be until you meet Jesus face to face in the new creation that you will experience the fullness of all that you were truly made for. But we've got to be honest, haven't we? Waiting is really hard. 
particularly in the midst of a city like ours in Manchester that says you don't have to. So what's the secret of waiting? What's the secret to resisting the city's empty call to take everything that you want right now? What is this? You've got to be convinced that death is just the doorway to a life beyond. You've got to be convinced of that. You see, Daniel and his friends are convinced. You see it time and time again throughout the book of Daniel. True wisdom for Daniel is engaging fully in the life of the city, but knowing the precise time to courageously say no. And to say, look, it is time to show my allegiance to God, even though it will risk my promotion. It's time to show my allegiance to God, even though it may risk me never being married. Time to show my allegiance to God and risk not pleasing my family. Time to risk not having as much as my peers. That is the discernment that a wise Christian has to wrestle through. But you can only take those risks if you are absolutely convinced that death is not the end. And the doorway, the doorway of death leads to a better life beyond. Daniel was absolutely convinced. But here's the wonderful news. Daniel was convinced, but he only saw in part something that we get to see in full. And what is it we get to see in full? We know through the testimonies, not only of the four gospel writers, but of hundreds of eyewitnesses in the first century who all saw Jesus Christ, the Son of God, beaten to a pulp, tortured, mutilated, and then killed. Hundreds of witnesses saw Jesus went through the door of death. And yet those same witnesses all testified. Three days later, he was seen alive again and fully restored. They testify that he came back through the door to tell us what lies beyond is actually new life. He came back through the door to tell us what's the other side of death is absolutely worth the wait. To tell us that actually if we resist temptation to worship the cult of impatience, we are worthy to do so because the best is yet to come. Jesus came back to tell us that if we trust him, we are not only permanently forgiven of all that we've ever done wrong, but Jesus himself will personally guarantee to take us through the door himself when it's our turn to go. I love living in the city. I love living in the city. But I must never forget that the best is yet to come. Because that is the secret to thriving in the city and not being crushed under its weight. Let me finish with this story. It, this was a testimony recorded by Don Cormack in the 1970s when the Khmer Rouge, a political group, were hunting down and mercilessly executing Christians simply for their faith. And Cormac recalls one story of a particular family. They were captured by the Khmer Rouge, 
And on the morning of their execution, they were told to dig a hole that was large enough for the bodies of the whole family to fit into. They were digging this hole at gunpoint, and they had no choice but to do the demand. The father of the family was a man named Hayim, and he, he begged the soldiers, if they would put their guns to a side just for a moment before they fired, to allow the family some time just to kneel before the pit and pray. And the soldiers allowed it. And so Hayim, with his family, gathered around this pit that was soon to be their grave, started praying aloud. He did it in a deliberately loud voice so the soldiers could hear because he prayed that the soldiers would know the gospel and that they would put their faith in Jesus too. He prayed that his family might be comforted for what they were about to go through. But just in the moment, one of his children burst out from the group and darted into the jungle. And he's... In the terror of the moment, Hayim stopped the soldiers from chasing after the child, and he asked if he could speak out loud to try and bring the child back before the soldiers would brutally hunt down that kid and do who knows what. And this is what he shouted out into the jungle. He shouted this, what comparison, my son, stealing a few more days of life in the wilderness a fugitive, wretched and alone, compared with joining your family here momentarily around this grave, but soon around the throne of God, free forever in paradise. Cormac writes that after a few tense minutes, the bushes parted and the lad, weeping, walked slowly back and took his place amongst the family. And Hayim turned to the soldiers and said, now we are ready. What is, what is the key thing that needs to fix our vision in order to thrive in a city? Well, it's this. We need to remember that death is just the doorway and that the best is yet to come. We need to remember that Jesus promises that all who trust him, he will take through that doorway personally. We need to remember that he will never let us go. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your goodness to us. You've called us to live or work or study in a city so that we might be a blessing to this place that has the influence to shape the rest of the world. That is an immense privilege, an immense responsibility, but this is also a hard place to live. And so I ask that you would give every single one of us in this room a vision to stay focused, not on the treasures that this city offers that are only temporary, but on the life that is to come that cannot be robbed of us and where we know with all of our hearts because the Lord Jesus has promised us that the very best, the very best is yet to come. Amen.